Welcome to Approaching Infinity, where we focus on the latest in finance, technology, and innovation. We present you with interesting and unique stories, news, and interviews to help you understand your limits and how to exceed them. Now, here's your host, Justin Rutnerine. Welcome back to Approaching Infinity, the podcast where we focus on all things finance, innovation, and technology. Today, I'm pleased to introduce Mr. Ryan Mackman onto the show. He's the Director of Planning and Market Research at the Medical College of Wisconsin, as well as a Business Development Lead at the VBC Exhibit Hall. He's also on the Advisory Board for the Digital Marketing Program at the University of South Florida. And finally, Ryan graduated with a Master's of Health Administration and an MBA from Florida Atlantic University. Ryan, anything I missed? No, I think that's pretty much it. Thank you, Justin, for having me on. I appreciate it. Oh, thank you. So uh, a quick background on my end. So myself and uh, Ryan, we actually graduated from the same school, Florida Atlantic University, albeit in different programs. And I always like to have fellow alumni on and kind of look of you know, what else is our alumni network doing? I looked into uh, Ryan's work and he's doing some incredible stuff. And I hope to focus and touch on some of that during the show. But that's enough for me. Ryan, why don't we go into the hero's journey? How did you start off? You know, once you, how did you find your passion for healthcare, transforming it? And let's just go from there. Well, my story is a little bit unorthodox, to say the least. Uh, everybody's, everybody's journey, I think, is their own. But uh, my path to success has certainly had its ups, downs, turn backwards, go back around. Um and and that's that that's a good thing because I think you learn a lot when you have to have uh, a lot of different industries under your belt, a lot of different challenges in front of you. So uh, I ended up merging my love for healthcare and my love for data together, and that's kind of what got me to where I'm at now. But my true career really started my data. The data piece started way back in 2006. When uh, so I was at Florida Atlantic University, but I was also working for the Florida Panthers. Your your current 2023 Eastern Conference champion, <laughs> Florida Panthers. Uh, they were not quite as good back when I was there, but I was with uh, at the time. Uh, the head coach was Jacques Martin, and the assistant GM was Randy Sexton. And uh, I had the opportunity to actually work in their front office using a program. Uh, that they called RinkNet, which was sort of my first foray into data analytics. So we would have to be calculating ice time and trying to figure out which players should be or should not be in the lineup, which players were available to us as far as trying to acquire, say, a fourth-line guy that was not being used by other teams, that was being you know healthy scratch, and maybe we could bring him to the Panthers and he could contribute. Uh, anyway, needless to say, when you're in the sports industry, if you don't win very often, which the Panthers didn't, then uh, you're going to be out of a job fairly quickly. So new ownership came in, you know, they gutted everybody. I actually went on to work for the Atlanta Thrashers for a little while and then decided I, I don't want this, you know, chaos that happens, this up and down that happens when you work in the sports industry. Um, so inevitably I took my uh, MBA. I eventually got into uh, some recruiting and then found my way into healthcare, uh, ultimately, because that's really where 
a lot of my family has all been involved in. My father was a radiologist. Mm-hmm. He was the president of the North Broward Radiology Group, which was down there in Broward Health. So he was connected to Broward General uh, and and really, well, it's not called Broward General anymore. It's Broward Health Medical Center. Um, but at the time right. it was Broward General and it's all under that Broward Health umbrella. And my brother is now a pediatric cardiologist in Orlando. I have an uncle who's in the dental space. Uh, heck, my mom was a an x-ray tech before she got pregnant with me. Wow. So we, we've all been in the healthcare space one way or another. And so I took my love already for healthcare and connection to the healthcare industry, combined it with the data analytics that I got uh, working in the sports industry and ended up after getting my MHA at FAU, uh, joined Premier Family Health and Wellness in Wellington, which is just outside of West Palm Beach. So that oh. is a level three patient center medical home. And what's really cool about Premier Family Health, so we have, I say we, I'm not there anymore, but we had primary care, we had urgent care, we had a wellness center, we had a dental office, uh, some limited imaging, there was chest x-rays and whatnot, we had a phlebotomy lab, we ended up going ahead and building a cafe, so there's now, it now exists on their campus, Premier Cafe and Roasters. Um, so we built that. I, I had no experience in the food and beverage industry. I was just on their admin team trying to work my way up uh, within Premier Family Health. And, uh, you know, we, I basically project managed that along wow. with the medical director, Dr. Vincent Apicella. Um, And so we built that up. And it, and it was kind of funny because after we created the cafe, what ended up happening, we acquired uh, you know, a little bit of a clientele early on because people wanted to see what, what was going on. Why was there a Mm -hmm. cafe connected to a medical center? Um, we had contracted with Panther coffee based out of Miami. So if anybody's a big specialty coffee fan, they'll know the name Panther coffee. (laughs) I've heard of it. (laughs) So it's, it, it is really, really good. Um, they have their main, their main HQ is down there in Wynwood, but they've opened up a couple of other locations, uh, around the Miami area. So we started serving Panther coffee. People were coming in for that. Um, they would learn about the medical center that way. They would learn about the dental office that way. So we were getting uh, patients as a result of it. But it was also, it, it was meant to, at the end of the day, provide kind of an oasis because when you've got a patient center medical home that is meant to be community focused, that is meant to be there for uh, the Wellington area, and people are going to spend a whole day there, right? You can get all your services done all in one day on the campus. Well, you need a place to stop and eat. So, you know, if you're going to go get your dental work done and then go down, get some lunch, come back and get your annual wellness visit done, get your physical done, get your whatever it is, or, or go spend some time. You can be you can be in the dental office and your wife or your kids can be in primary care doing something else. And that was the idea because people don't want to take days and days off of work to, to no, go that get makes perfect uh, sense. You want to, yeah, especially with the senior funny. community that's down there. Uh, and, and, and they have a lot of, you know, things that they have to take care of from, from a health standpoint. Um, it also created a little bit of, uh, of, of transparency and connectivity between the different providers um, so that was easier for them. So there's a lot of reasons from a population health okay. standpoint that makes uh, a patient center medical home work. Just kind of a funny side story. Yes. Uh, we ended up acquiring 
a famous, I guess you could, I mean, yeah, a famous uh, Palm Beach County resident, Vanilla Ice, started coming in for the coffee <laughs> and got to know all the providers. And people would come in looking for Vanilla Ice uh, to see if he would be there, which he was every once in a while. And for those who don't know, you know, he's not he's not doing his music as much anymore. He's, he's a general contractor building houses in the area. So he would come in for his morning coffee just, just because he liked Panther coffee and everything about it, which is kind of fun. (laughs) Um, anyway, I was at premier family health for about four years and it was a great experience. Uh, we were the number one performing medical practice, uh, at the number one performing accountable care organization in the U S and that is Palm Beach ACO. Um, so Palm Beach ACO. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. So Palm Beach ACO. Um, and for those who don't know about accountable care organizations and value-based care, the ACOs, there, there's about 500 ACOs around the country. And what they do is they have a series of mostly primary care offices underneath them. And what they're going to be doing is trying to practice population health instead of creating transactional medicine where you may call in and say, hey, I need to schedule an appointment because my arm hurts and I could be there on XYZ day. And then that's it. You never hear from them again. This is more of a continuity of care where you can then come in and we will follow you through every stage, especially if you're you know, senior, if you're a Medicare mm-hmm. patient. It's, it's a really important um, Medicare ACOs. It's, it's a big deal. They're trying to uh, achieve the Medicare ACOs achieve shared savings by they all have they're all engaged in uh capitated payments right so cms it's it's uh the idea is that if you have a certain number of beneficiaries Mm -hmm. um those beneficiaries should cost a certain amount that's your benchmark and if you can bring the patients in and you can give them access to care quality of care um if you can achieve the triple aim and you can do all that coming in under that benchmark then basically the difference between the two is going to be your shared savings. And then CMS gets a portion of it and you get a portion of it. So that way it stops duplicative procedures. You know, we know a lot of our senior community likes to, they dock shop, right? They're going to go to to this guy and then get the same procedure done by the next guy to the next guy because, you know, their friend down the street maybe uh, told them, oh, try this doctor, or I didn't like the bedside manner of this doctor, and that costs a lot of money. So basically, CMS is losing or was losing money. Um, well, they're still losing money at this point, but value-based care is their big experiment designed mm-hmm. to try to uh, curb all of that. And right now, CMS is hoping that 100% of Medicare uh, beneficiaries will be in an ACO in the next seven years, that was their last mandate. Gosh. That Do you came think down. it's achievable, in your opinion? Or? It could be achievable. <laughs> it's it's ambitious. Uh, part <laughs> of the problem is number one, value based care is something that you know I'm I'm speaking to you about it on the most basic level because every time that I run into people, they don't know about value-based care. They don't know mm-hmm. value-based people that go through FAU's MHA program. They don't even know value-based no. care is an option for them to get into, but the patients themselves don't even know if they're in an ACO or not. Typically they're, they're going through so many different papers. They're signing so many different things when they're in the office. Uh, you know, they don't, they don't know what letters they're getting or what, or what they're signing away. 
um, you know, they're, they're certainly discerning from a sense of they don't want to share their data, but they don't always know what programs they are. And if it takes me this long to explain what value-based care is to you, it's hard to sell it to a patient. So a lot of them don't even know if their practice is involved in an ACO. Um, but rest assured, if you're a Medicare beneficiary, CMS wants you involved in that, uh, in, in the next seven years, which I think is, I, I personally think is a good thing. Yeah, it seems um, important. I think, like it seems like an important goal to reach. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, so here's the thing, right? We, especially in Florida, you have so such a large senior population, and CMS states that seventy uh, percent of their beneficiary population has two or more uh, comorbidities. So, really, that's a lot. Most, a lot of them are those comor- comorbidities. Uh, are often one of them being diabetes. Um, and so having a staff available to the patients and, and watching them through their whole continuity of care is critical, especially from a cost standpoint, because how many patients do you think they don't have a relationship with their provider and they go start mm-hmm. using the ER as their primary care provider. Well, guess what? If you go to the ER and send them your primary care for primary care services, it costs five times the amount that it would normally cost for you just to go to your PCP. So part of the job of these ACOs, part of the job of the practices that are connected to these ACOs is educating patients on the best way to use our healthcare system. Right. So if you go to the ER, we already know from a transparency standpoint, you might get a surprise bill because you might be at a your doctor that you see might not be on your insurance, but the facility is. So you get these hidden fees and and you get dinged for that. I mean, it's just there's so many issues right now with with healthcare, And I'm not saying that value based care is the silver bullet because I don't think there is a silver bullet. I think there's so many layers to our healthcare system that are not in the best position right now. Um, it might take it might take some time. It might take you and my our whole generation to to continue <laughs> to work on this over the next thirty plus years, you know, forty plus years of our career to to iron these out. But I think value based care is certainly a step in the right direction. No, that's understandable. That makes sense. Uh, personally, myself, I didn't know about any of this. And now after this, I'm definitely going to research this more because it seems like such, I don't want to say simple, but it, it seems, you know, there's definitely layers to understand it, but it's definitely a concept that should be pushed out and pushed to patients because it helps them understand, you know, the treatment they're going for, the cost um, they might incur. And it just, uh, you get a, a more well-informed patient, it seems like. Yes. And, and, then, and I think... Yeah. I think to your point, you know, more well-informed patient, just like any kind of well-informed consumer, I don't want to say a patient is a consumer, but I mean, they are, right? They're a consumer of the healthcare system. Um, You're always going to be better off that way. I see. Okay. No, thank you for for touching on that point. I I also want to, uh, our listeners, some of them are also in the healthcare field themselves. They are curious about exactly what does it mean to be, you know, the director of planning and market research at the Medical College of Wisconsin? You can kind of explain, you know, maybe, you know, what does a typical day look right, look like? Uh, you know, what are you, you know, current events or current research or uh, just whatever you're working on right now? What do you, what interests you? Yeah. So it's, role? it's, 
well, I'd like to say it's complicated, right? That's what we say about about uh, uh, people used to say on their Facebook relationship. It's complicated. Um, but <laughs> but kind of my path to getting to MCW here in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Uh, well, it's certainly colder up here. It's it's wonderful up here right now in 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 Milwaukee. Um, to get to this point, I kind of had to go through a couple of other hoops, right? After I was with Premier Family Health. I had to get in with, uh, I joined a, a group called Salient Healthcare, and we did data analytics specifically for ACOs. Um, so we really then dove into the nuts and bolts of value-based care to understand the, sp- the, you know, the spend, the risk, the quality, the attribution, and patient utilization. You've got to really know those KPIs, and you have to learn how to develop uh, essentially operational goals for medical practices and for ACOs uh, based on that data. So remember I said in the beginning that I started out working on data with the Florida Panthers, then I had to use that data or the knowledge of data to kind of figure out what was going on at Premier. And then we were solely data. We actually created a data solution with Salient um, that we brought to other ACOs around the country. So pre-COVID, I was flying around uh, dealing with those ACOs and participating uh, in various speaking engagements at NACOS, the National Association of ACOs, and the Florida Association of ACOs. Uh, And we would run various uh, educational events through ACO Exhibit Hall, which is how I met them and one of the reasons that I'm helping them out now as well. Um, and then after that, I joined a group of actuaries. I am not an actuary. They they are uh, called Validate Health uh, based in Chicago. And then that led me to MCW. And what we do at MCW, uh, I'm part of the strategy team. And so what we're doing is trying to help the medical school. Um, it is the largest private medical school in the state of Wisconsin. And uh, I, we're trying to work on various plans to create the healthcare education system for the future. And for me, value-based care has to be a part of that. Understanding that technology has to be a part of that. Population health has to be a part of that. One of the biggest challenges that I ran into in value-based care is that um, I would have to educate and re-educate people all the time. And you're constantly doing the, you know, the 101 version of value-based care because uh, the doctors that have been in the industry for a long time, they're used to practicing a certain way. It is not easy for them to turn around and say, let me change the way that I practice care, uh, you know, 10, 15, 20 years into my career already. And so now I realized if I can get involved with a school like MCW and we can teach the important things that are going to be coming down the pipeline to the providers of tomorrow, we have a better shot at actually making changes to our healthcare system in the long run. Because that's the healthcare system that I'm going to use when I'm a senior. That's the healthcare system that my son, who's one years old, is going to use when he's in college. You know, and so for me, that that that's kind of the the important piece is thinking about the future, being as much I wouldn't call myself a futurist, but working towards that goal uh, of repairing the way we use our healthcare system and the 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 types of doctors that we're putting out there uh, and the knowledge that they have uh, in population health. No, I I think that's a a great summary. I mean, I understood it there where it's. Uh basically trying to make the doctors of tomorrow by educating them on the material that uh, might be valid for the patients themselves. Um, 
no, that that's that's great. It, it makes sense to me. Um, for I guess I also want to touch on like where do you think what is the current status of it right now? So like, hey, are there uh, already doctors in the field? You know, I'm sure there are that are practicing. You know, the, these ADOs, but like, how much? I guess is there a timeline? Like, say, I know you said seven years before, but honestly, from what you're seeing, I don't know how many doctors or physicians go through uh, MCW. But what do you think is the timeline for just like, hey, at this point in the future, maybe it's seven years, maybe it's uh, 10 years, everyone's educated on these benefits. Uh, everyone's kind of on the same page. And could you speak to that a bit? I I hope it's seven years. I think that would be great. Um, if I'm being honest, <laughs> I think healthcare, we've seen already, Healthcare is slow to change. It's always been slow to change. I mean, how many how many doctors' offices are still not on EMRs? I don't think people realize this, but there are still doctors' offices that are not on electronic medical records. And yet, here we are. We have companies out there trying to develop EMR 2.0, and uh, they're trying to use uh, you know various interoperability like Fire uh, FHIR. Uh, uh, API to be able to to connect and provide interoperability between these EMRs and and be more transparent uh, in the data that they're sharing. But yet there are still medical practices, especially rural medical practices, that aren't even on EMR. So uh, to answer your question, we probably have to solve some of the outstanding issues that are still going on from uh, bringing bringing healthcare. Uh, practices out there up to today before we're even going to get them all into value-based care. So it's nice. it's going to be something where it's a slow churn. It's always been a slow churn. If I had to give a honest timeline, it's not going to be seven years. You may get all the beneficiaries into an ACO in seven years, um, but I think it's going to be 20 years before everybody starts to really understand at a broad level what value-based care is. I mean, if you're listening to this podcast now and you say, hey, I, I, you know, value-based care sounds interesting to me. It's something that I might want to get into. Uh, I would encourage you to look up NACOS, N-A-A-C-O-S. I would encourage you to look up FLACOS, F-L-A-A-C-O-S. And see what they have on their websites. I think it's it's as good a start as any. Um, but it's certainly something too, where if people have other questions, they can reach out to me on, on LinkedIn or, or I can try to point them in the right direction. But I think the resources are available, uh, both with NACOS and FLACOS, and then certainly go look on uh, the CMS website. I'm not saying it's going to be fun because CMS's websites (laughs) are not known for being particularly user-friendly, but there is information on there on it. Excellent. And then I I know you said previously, um, that we touched on it. There's many layers to healthcare, right? There's, uh, I don't claim to know them all, but even knowing that there's numerous layers, you know, there's numerous layers of problems, solutions, what do you think is the best way to cut through it? I know right now uh, through MCW, by educating the doctors of tomorrow, that's one way. But what are some other, uh, I guess, industry problems that you think could be addressed relatively simply that won't be this seven to 10 year time frame that could be addressed now? Things that are more... Well- uh, I, I kind doable. of I brought up interoperability um, already, and I think that that's going to help a lot. I think we need to get to the point where people's medical records are easily transferable, right? We we have apps on our phones now that 
are able to, I can log in to whatever your bank is and you can see what your current balance is and I can log out of the app and we know that it's secure and no one's going to steal that data or information uh, from you. So why can't we do something that's equally secure from a medical record standpoint? And then that way people can bring their records from office to office and we can create a little bit of transparency and cooperation between uh, various providers. I think that that's one thing that I think is going to be corrected maybe sooner than later because the technology mm -hmm. already exists in some capacity to to be able to do that. I also think uh, we've already started down the path of making telehealth more ubiquitous. We already do a lot of things from home, right? We, we People are working from home. People are um, ordering everything from Amazon and they're not even going to go shopping themselves. So if you can do everything from home, why not be doing your, you know, having your, your doctor's appointments from home? And I think you're seeing more and more people start to accept telehealth as an option for them. And I'm hoping that, that in time that will actually drive more engagement with your mm -hmm. primary care provider. I know some of us young guys, you know, we don't, we don't think that we need to see a, a, a PCP, uh, that often because we don't have a lot of aches and pains, but it, but it is worth it to just get a baseline and, and develop a relationship with your primary care provider going once a year, uh, and get, and if you got to do that via telehealth, great. That, I mean, that's a positive to me. Oh, no, that, yeah, that's understandable too. I think for the, like the electronic medical records, like, like you said, the technology is there. I don't know. I haven't really de delved, you know, deep into the issue, but I'm assuming it's like a money uh, logistics problem maybe or just i don't know but it seems like one of those issues that hey if we solve this the technology exists you know whether it's uh yeah, just everyone get on the same page everyone use the same platform i think we could solve a lot of records down the road like you pointed out it's like hey electronic or records are now be able to be shared between different hospitals providers all throughout the nation and then i don't know it just it looks like a greener pasture over there and hopefully that well, sure. gets I, resolved. I, think, I think if we can get to that point where you know, we can get records shared together. We can we mm -hmm. can get more data on what people are doing. This all ties into, at the end of the day, social determinants of health. If you haven't heard that term before, mm -hmm. absolutely worth looking up. Um, but it basically speaks to the social impact on people's health. And you'll find that people that are in rural areas don't fare as well as people uh, in, in cities do and in, in, in better developed areas do. Um, and some of that has to do with food deserts. Some of that has to do with access to care. There's a lot of different things that plug into it. But, um, you know, I think that if we can get to the point where you're sharing medical records and the next step becomes, all right, what data sources do we need to be able to put together to really get an idea of what the demographic of a patient is? What, you know, other than just, hey, they scheduled an appointment with their PCP, but why not bring in data from uh, Amazon and Google mm -hmm. and maybe uh, you look at uh, credit, like Experian credit data, because that's going to tell you: Does a patient uh, own a car? Does a patient take the bus? Do, what are they doing? And do, you know, what is their credit right. history? And this, you know, you look at this and you go, "Oh my God, that's a complete invasion of privacy." Why would you even think about that? <laughs> but if you're trying to figure out the health of a patient and what causes them to uh, be in the situation that they're in, that data is going to tell you that. It's going to tell you where they go on a, on a day-to-day -day basis. And then you can sit down with that patient and work with them. If they truly want to get better, if they want to get healthy, you can work with them on that. You can get that story because sometimes patients are hesitant mm -hmm. to talk to their doctor about what's actually going on with them out of you know being nervous, fear, anxiety, or whatnot. No, no, I 
I agree on that. You know, if if the data exists, you know, sharing that data will be beneficial to the patient. Then you know, if you opt into it, I think it'll be helpful. Um, honestly, they, for the other talking points I had, it was more or less just like the collaboration and the future of healthcare, in your opinion. But I think honestly, that discussion <laughs> more or less covers it. Covers your thoughts. Uh, it paints a good picture for the future. Any other um, uh, thoughts on maybe the future? Uh, future problems, future solutions that you want to touch on by chance? I think that there's a lot out there for people that are getting into healthcare administration. There's, you know, it used to be that you go in and if you're going to get an MBA or an MHA, you'd get into, you know, traditional revenue cycle management and you go down the finance course path or you'd go down trying to become a COO of a hospital system or a regional hospital system or of a medical practice. And I think that now, you know, there's so much more. We don't even we haven't even scratched the surface on AI and biotech and so many other areas. Not just you know all of that's going to require data. So if you can take that MHA, if you can take that healthcare uh, knowledge, if you can get into the industry and then start navigating and blazing your own path, whether it be through entrepreneurship, whether it be through connecting yourself to primary care practices, value based care, whatever it is you want to do. There's just so much out there, and it's it's a it's a daunting, but it's a fun time to be in healthcare. There's just there's a lot of work for all of us to do. Wow, <laughs> excellently summarized. Now, um, I want to thank you again for coming on the show. If people want to reach out, uh, support, or connect with you, how can they uh, re- how can they connect? I think LinkedIn is probably always the best way to do that. Um, you can just look me up. My last name is spelled M A C K. M-A-N, so Mac, like the truck uh, man. And uh, I'm not too hard to, to get a hold of, I don't think. All right. Hey, thank you again. All right. Thank you for listening to another episode of Approaching Infinity. Make sure to follow us to be notified of new episodes. And feel free to reach out directly on LinkedIn at Justin Rupnarine on Instagram at JRLive7 or Twitter at Justin underscore 777 underscore.